This is Regarding Research, a look at what Auburn University College of Liberal Arts faculty do outside of the classroom. Faculty research enhances knowledge and provides innovative solutions in a variety of fields and disciplines. It takes the form of books, journal articles, creative performances, art, and so much more. This episode features Dr. Steve Brown, a professor in the Department of Political Science. His research focuses on church and state issues and American legal history. Recently, Victoria Santos of the Office of External Affairs sat down with Steve to discuss his use of moot court in the classroom, the bicentennial of Alabama's statehood, and the prestigious Hughes Gossett Award he received from the United States Supreme Court Historical Society. Well, thank you for being here today, Steve. I just want to start off by asking you to introduce yourself to us, please. Okay, well, it's great to be here, Vicki. Uh, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm a professor of political science in the uh, political science department here at Auburn. And how did you get involved with what you teach? You teach constitutional law, um, and you've been doing moot court, and you've been involved in a number of political science um, endeavors and classes and courses. How did you get involved with teaching political science, and, and how did you become interested in the, the subject matter? Well, uh, so in terms of political science, I was a, an undergraduate. Uh, that was my major as an undergraduate was political science. I always loved it, and I, I actually took a couple of classes in constitutional law at that time um, and was intrigued by it, but uh, then went and did an internship in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. I worked in the Senate for a couple of years, and, uh, and after that, when I decided to go to uh, grad school instead of law school, which I had previously planned to do, I thought I would end up being kind of the, the, the Congress guy. In political science, you have to kind of specialize in American government or international relations or you're the presidency guy or the congress guy or whatever else but didn't think of constitutional law just because I'd had this experience on Capitol Hill but at any rate uh, when I went to graduate school I went to University of Virginia and my first two weeks there um, the professor in my constitutional law class was in Japan and uh, so he had a graduate student teach the class and when he came back uh, just because he'd been in Japan I'd lived in Japan for a couple of years when I was younger and I just wanted to get to know him and we just formed this this connection this bond and he took me under his wing and that's kind of how I got steered towards constitutional law because of, uh, of him and his name is David O'Brien and he's just a, a great uh, constitutional law scholar and um, and so that's kind of how, how it went and I'm grateful for it because uh, constitutional law everybody has a feeling about it. Uh, they all have their issues with uh, with abortion or, or gay marriage or religion or whatever it may be, the Second Amendment. And uh, it's just a gift that keeps on giving. It's much more fun to teach that, I think, than Congress. And so I'm, I'm grateful that it, it went that way. Um, how did you get, you said you wanted to be a lawyer mm -hmm. originally. How did you get interested in, in law? Has this just been a, like a family thing or? No, I just happen? always uh, just always had something about the law that I really enjoyed and uh, had been accepted to law school when I went on to this internship uh, to Washington, D.C. And two months into the internship, it was my last semester of college, um, a woman on the senator's staff announced she was getting married and he asked if I'd stay. And we were right in the middle of some uh, trade disputes with Japan at that time, something called the Structural Impediments Initiative. And my experience there had uh, helped to be able to just open a door where I could I could help him. But I ended up staying about two years uh, and didn't go to law school. My brother was in uh, Cornell Law School at the time and hated every minute of it. And uh, and at the same time as the, re the recession of the early 1990s, and several of my friends in D.C. that worked for these uh, you know one in 200 member firms were getting laid off. And so I saw that, uh, realized maybe I didn't want to practice law, uh, but wanted to keep that legal uh, connection of some type. And so again, that played in well when I got to grad school and, and uh, David O'Brien kind of took me under his wing. So you were at grad school 
well, you were in D.C., you went to grad school, and tell us a little bit about how you came to Auburn, what happened after grad school. Okay, well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, so, like a lot of people, never thought I uh, would end up in Auburn. Uh, loved Virginia, loved our time we lived in Maryland and the D.C. area, but had no desire to go any further south. And um, uh, so, working on my dissertation and uh, and getting a few nibbles on some jobs and things like that. But to be honest with you, uh, when they contacted my dissertation chair, uh, David O'Brien, um, he said, I'm not sure he's going to be done. I'm just not sure he'll, he'll finish it. And he was, he's very blunt and honest about that. And um, But I finished. I finished in May. But by that time, the jobs had kind of uh, dried up. Uh, in June, the last week of June of 1998, so I defended my dissertation, was awarded my PhD in May, uh, an email went out across the country from the political science department saying we have a kind of immediate opening for a one-year position, kind of some strange circumstances that led to that, and um, and I, you know, faxed everything down and was hired over the phone uh, to come for a one-year position. They, they had such an immediate need because we were on the quarter system back then and needed someone pretty quickly. And then the following year, uh, they did a, a national search for the tenure track slot, and I was able to... Uh, to um, get that so so came on just what's supposed to be a one-year position to Auburn Alabama and been here ever since what made you decide to stay well uh, to be honest with you uh, there was the students I think um, I, I came down here University of Virginia has some incredible students I didn't know quite what to expect from Auburn students um, I had never I had never taught a class on a quarter basis before and I so I took the syllabi that I had used up at the University of Virginia constitutional law syllabi and I thought I'm only going to be here for a year I'm just going to give these students everything a semester's worth of work in a quarter and uh, and they were outstanding they were outstanding and that's when I realized that Auburn students can go toe-to-toe with with uh, students at University of Virginia or Harvard or Yale or anywhere else and that was part of it that was a large part of it the community and and the great feel uh, here in Auburn in the city itself was something that helped us make that decision too but it was a very easy decision to make when the opportunity to stay came up it was just it was great well, I'm, I know, you know, hearing, been, having been here 11 years, I've heard students talk about your course, and, and really they appreciate you as a professor, so I'm glad, I'm sure they're glad you stayed as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about moot court and what you do there? Um, the students really seem to get into it. They really seem to learn a lot. How did that get started? So again, a lot of the stuff I brought down with me uh, as a teaching assistant, uh, David O'Brien's classes, his constitutional law classes would have a, a moot court. And what we do with that is we, t- we t- take a case that's currently pending before the Supreme Court. So let me back up here. Moot court's very common in constitutional law classes, but very often it'll be a moot court on Roe v. Wade or a moot court on Brown versus Board of Education. You already know the result. You know how it's supposed to turn out, but the students will role play and do things. The way he did it and the way I do it is that we take a case that's currently on the Supreme Court's docket. Uh, they take 10,000, the court takes about 10,000 cases, up, let me back up, about 10,000 cases are appealed to the Supreme Court every year. The court will take about 90 and, uh, and then you know, reject the rest and the lower opinion will stand in those cases. And so I'll go through once they announce which cases they're taking and try and find a case that hopefully matches up with the course that we're teaching. If it's a First Amendment course, we'll try and get a First Amendment-related class or a moot court case and, and things like that. If it's a criminal law class like we had this past spring, we'll, we'll get a criminal law case and do the best we can to kind of match that up. Uh, and then I'll try to make sure it's uh, that it, where it falls in the in the semester, the court has not heard it yet, and so they've calendared it. They're getting ready for moot court. They're getting ready for the actual oral arguments. But we try and have our moot court first. 
And so uh, basically I announced it to the, to the students. They sign up for the different roles. Uh, we have uh, three students that will be counsel for one side. Three students will serve as the attorneys on the other. We have nine justices. And, uh, and then, you know, I just turn them loose. And uh, the, the oral argument for moot court is a kind of back and forth. As the justices for a half hour on each side will ask questions of the counsel while they're also presenting their argument. And watching that back and forth, that give and take is just fascinating. And then there's a, a writing assignment at the end that they ha- that they all have to do. But uh, it's a great experience, as as you know, because I know you had a chance to go up there and see it. We do it up, up on um, at the top of the Haley Center. So Haley Center is the tallest building in Auburn, and we do it on the tenth floor, the top floor, so we can really say we're the highest court in the land. <laughs> and so that kind of works out uh, that way. And when we make a makeshift courtroom up there. And I uh, put a, a black robes on these students, and it just changes them. It's just the, the, the way that people are very quiet, don't say very much in class. Uh, you put a black robe on them, and they just will grill the, the counsel in front of them. And it's just a fascinating exercise. And, so, and then, uh, quite frankly, at the end of that, uh, they, they know as much about this case as probably anybody in the country except for the, the parties and, the, and those following them. They're not much better than the media. Um, and then we just wait. We wait for the Supreme Court's opinion to come out. And uh, we have not been – we've done about 145 of these, I think, since 1998. And I think we've been wrong maybe 10 times. We, we usually will – We'll be able to tell you know which side it's going to come down on, and I think that's a testament to my students' preparation and their involvement in that. And uh, and I'm not um, what I'm not uh, naive enough to think they're going to remember all the cases that we've studied because uh, we do about 90 per class. Uh, but uh, but they remember the moot court case. They remember that one very well, and and uh, they'll send me emails and call me after the court's decision comes out. And it's just it's it's cool to see that learning still taking place long after the, cl- the uh, class has ended. So they don't read from a transcript. I, I thought maybe this was something that had already been maybe lesser-known cases that were already tried, and then they were just kind of reenacting and maybe ad-libbing. This, no, this is it, all original. It's, it's all ad-lib, and that's yeah. the thing uh, that makes it so fascinating. In fact, we don't even study it in class because we have our, our regular classes we've got to take. And so, I mean, our regular course we have to uh, go through and the cases we have to study. And so, like um, like this uh, this past semester, one of the criminal law classes that we talked about, uh, one of the criminal, my criminal law class, one of the cases we did in the moot court was out of Massachusetts, where a uh, a kid was involved uh, was was suspected of being involved in a murder, uh, and uh, when the police came to his house to talk to him and his mom talked to him for a long, long time, and then left after saying to his mom, you need to have a heart-to-heart talk with this kid. And she, over the next several days, talks to him, and their very religious family prays for him and kind of finally gets him to admit that he was involved in this murder. And uh, so, and then he goes and confesses eventually to the police. But in that particular case, the question that's now on on appeal to the Supreme Court, uh, one of the questions is, was that coerced? Was his mom basically acting like the police and coercing him to confess, which would violate his Fifth Amendment right against uh, self-incrimination? But uh, we don't talk about that in that class. We talk about the self-incrimination clause, but I turn that over to them, and they do all the background research, and I I tell them, okay, you're going to have, you know, the the two parties, the state of Massachusetts, and then this kid whose name was, was Weaver, uh, involved here, uh, the council will start the presentation. You justices need to ask questions and make them demonstrate to you why you should rule a particular way. And uh, I asked them to have 10 questions prepared beforehand, uh, just so they kind of jumpstart the process. But once it gets going, you just have no idea where it's going to go. You may have a very, very aggressive bench, a very passive bench. Um, 
but to be counsel and have a presentation that you have to stay focused on, then answer these questions and get back on track, and, and it's just amazing to watch. And uh, I just am so grateful to have the opportunity and so proud of the students each semester. It's just a, 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 it's just an amazing thing to watch. So It absolutely is. I agree. <laughs> well, having been you know in D.C. and having taught this course for so long, and obviously there's you're very in tune with what's happening politically around the country, how do you or do you keep your personal opinions out of the classroom and how do you manage I mean especially such a contentious year how do you manage those conversations in your class? Right well uh, I tell my students up front that they're welcome to ask me anything they want to in my office Uh, my my political beliefs my religious beliefs whatever they want I'm happy to tell them there but I tell them in class you're going to learn that um, that the law is not always as black and white as it would appear as interest groups would make it appear as the parties on either side would make it appear it's very often gray and so I do try to play to the devil's advocate on almost all of our cases and help them to see that when they thought, oh, man, that conservative, I can't believe that conservative justice ruled that way or that liberal justice ruled that way, now hopefully they, they get a sense, well, I, I can kind of see it now. I can kind of see how that goes. So I try to be, be balanced in the, in the, in the classroom and uh, let them discover uh, and I tell them it's about moot court, too, and other things, that it's one thing to close your eyes and close your ears and say, don't tell me, don't tell me, I, I just don't agree with that. Uh, it's another thing to say, give me everything, give me everything on your position, everything on your side, and know it thoroughly, and then still be able to reject it. And so I, I encourage them to get out there and, and understand other other uh, sides' view. And it doesn't mean they have to change their mind or, or convert to a position that's not theirs, but uh, they need to be informed. And so... So the constitutional issues that are percolating now, uh, we certainly bring those in. And um, in next semester, I'm teaching a separation of powers class. We're talking about the powers of the presidency, the powers of Congress, uh, different things like that is laid out by Supreme Court opinion. And much of what people think are policy disputes, and, and they are with the current administration or the previous administrations, uh, really are questions of power. Should a President Trump or President Obama or President Bush do these things unilaterally? Should Congress be more involved? And those questions of power are set forth in Supreme Court opinion. And so, uh, you know, you, you can say, oh, I just can't stand this president, can't stand this policy, can't stand whatever. But the larger question is, how do you, how do you maintain the proper balance between the different institutions of government? And so when you look at it that way, it's easy to look at those, those same controversial issues, but pull them apart enough to realize I don't have to beat people over the head or, you know, get in fights, throw chairs at each other, that we can have question, disputes on the, on the smaller issues and have concerns, uh, shared concerns about the larger issues about power and things like that. Well, in addition to teaching, you're an active researcher. And can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently researching and, and why? Well, currently, I'm uh, actually putting together a, a, a book as well as a, um, a traveling museum display is what it is uh, uh, relative to great Supreme Court cases from the state of Alabama and the three Supreme Court justices that have been appointed from here. And that's all connection with the, the 2019 uh, bicentennial of Alabama statehood. And so working on it now, so it's be, be ready to go in January of 2019 and then tour throughout the state. And so... It gives me an opportunity to uh, to delve into these cases that I've talked about and taught to my classes, and uh, very often prefacing it with, "Oh, here's another great case from Alabama, and here's something else that came from the state that I was not aware of before I, I moved down here." But uh, they're landmark cases that made a huge difference for for people throughout the country, and uh, I'm not sure Alabamians. Uh, are as familiar with those, just to be honest with you. And so it gives me an opportunity to take this throughout the state and uh, and hopefully educate some folks about the, these cases, the parties that were involved, and, and the really important decision that the Supreme Court rendered that affects all of us. 
And who are the three, you said three Supreme mm -hmm. Court justices? Right. Uh, John McKinley, which is the one nobody knows about, but I wrote a, a book about him a couple of years ago. Uh, John Archibald Campbell, who uh, a lot of people have heard of simply because he left the Supreme Court when Alabama seceded from the Union, uh, was kind of a child prodigy and was uh, people generally legal scholars would say had he stayed he would have had a huge huge impact on the court but he left uh, early um, after uh, Alabama seceded from the Union prior to the Civil War and then Hugo Black and Hugo Black was the the latest appointment uh, but uh, had just a, a huge effect uh, impact I should say because of his insistence that the Bill of Rights applied against uh, which protect you against your government um, protect uh, people at all levels of government and really prior to his tenure on the court, the idea was that the Bill of Rights protected you against national government intervention and interference on those rights, but uh, states and, and lo state and local governments could, could impose on those. And if you had a problem with that, you'd have to go to your state constitutions, your state uh, bills of rights. Uh, rights. And, uh, and he was very insistent, no, they apply to everybody against any level of government interference, which is very significant. What do you have in mind for the exhibit? I know you're working on some panels, mm -hmm. and what what else what else are you thinking? Well, uh, I'm I'm actually primarily in charge of the content, and I'm working with a, a fellow from Birmingham that has uh, done several of these museum displays before. That's what he does professionally, and the way that he envisions it is we'll have uh, several different panels with this, some uh, audio of the oral arguments in these cases, some video and uh, photographs of the parties of uh, different uh, elements that are uni unique to these cases and things like that. So I don't know exactly all that's going to be involved with it. I kind of have an idea, but he's he's kind of the creative genius on that end. But we want it to be um, interactive. It'll be, you know, 3D. It'll involve, you know, reading and, and hearing and watching and different things like that. And we hope it'll be accessible to, um, to people that maybe have college degrees and lawyers and people who know all this stuff as well as people that are encountering this for the first time and, and uh, juveniles as well that, and, and hopefully spark an interest in them in law generally and in the Constitution and Bill of Rights generally, but also in some of the more specific aspects of, of these people and the cases and things from Alabama. And so this will be for the state of Alabama. Will it travel? It'll start off in Montgomery, or do you have uh, any ideas uh, yet? Start off in Huntsville is what in we're looking Huntsville. at now, and go through through Birmingham, Montgomery, um, and then um, uh, Mobile is what we're looking at for the, uh, several several weeks in each site. And then we've had several libraries, several. Uh, people in different government uh, buildings around the state that have said, if, if you're scheduling other uh, uh, tours, we'd like to be uh, on that list as well. So we, we kind of have it laid out tentatively through 20, uh, 2019, but I think it'll actually tour around for a while after that as well, I, I believe. I hope it will. Well, let's uh, move on to an award that you just received, which um, is, is pretty, pretty big. It's the 2017 Hughes Gossett Senior Prize for the best article in the Journal of Supreme Court History, sounds like a big deal. So <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the article and what receiving that award has meant to you? Well, the article was uh, called uh, the, the Gerard Will and Twin Landmarks of Supreme Court History. And what it dealt with was uh, in doing research on uh, the biography I wrote of Justice McKinley, the, the first Supreme Court Justice from Alabama, I had access to a newspaper database uh, where uh, 19th century newspapers had been digitized and you could just put in different uh, keywords and things. And so typing in John McKinley's name brought up now press reports from that era of the different cases he'd been involved with. And I was really intrigued by this case uh, dealing with, with the Gerard will. Uh, it, uh, Stephen Gerard was probably the wealthiest man that has ever lived in America. And uh, he uh, died in 
1831, I believe, something like that. But he left uh, virtually everything he had to the city of Philadelphia. And uh, people were shocked at that and were amazed. And, uh, and he said, I want you to use this money to create a school for uh, fatherless boys. And, uh, and he did say white, white boys. So, and then he also said, and at the school, I want you to teach him this, 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 and this. But I don't want any missionaries on campus. I don't want any religious instruction on campus. And those two provisions, uh, the, the idea about religion not being actively taught there, and the fact it's only for white uh, boys, fatherless boys, became the focus of, uh, of two court cases, one of which in 1844 John McKinley sat on and had tremendous, just huge amount of media covers like we have now of, of controversial Supreme Court cases. And, and probably in his day, there is no other case like it. Um, it just attracted the, the attention of, of the media nationwide and people would flock to Washington, D.C. We have typically one hour oral arguments now uh, on cases that the court hears, but back then they'd be for several days long. And so people would come in to listen to Daniel Webster and, and uh, other people argue these cases. But uh, so that was 1844, and then you have in uh, 1957 the the racial part that's that's uh, argued. The same will, uh, you have the racial part that's argued, and can a city that is governed by the Constitution and the Constitution provision, provisions can it uh, dis- discriminate on the basis of race of who is allowed into this school? And uh, so the argument was: Listen, it's his will. I mean, he stipulated the provisions of that will. Who are we to? not abide by that and the Supreme Court came down and said it doesn't matter you are a government entity and as government entities you can't discriminate on the basis of race and so I was just intrigued by having the exact same will uh, 100 years apart uh, tying the antebellum court and the Warren court Uh, Daniel Webster comes out uh, against this will Martin Luther King comes out against this will I just found it was just very interesting and that was that was what I wrote the article about and uh, and that then it received that nomination for that prize And how did you feel learning about being the award winner? Well, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty awesome. I have to go to D.C. and uh, go to the Supreme Court, and uh, they're going to have a big festival as part of or celebration as part of several other things where I'll be presented the award by, um, actually by one of the justices of the Supreme Court, who be the person who will be presenting it to me, so that's kind of cool. But I will say I think the greatest um, uh, part about this that I'm, I'm very pleased about is that the the board of editors who selects the award uh, it's like a who's who of constitutional scholars and constitutional historians and that those folks would um, would think that my stuff was my research was was uh, I don't know uh, good enough to be recognized in that manner means a great deal to me. So getting the award in in, at, in the Supreme Court's chambers by one of the justices is going to be pretty neat but uh, given the people that nominated me for it that's what I feel very very happy about and very grateful for. Are you taking the family to D.C. and getting pictures for us? Uh, we, we, yeah, we will. Uh, I've got a daughter in, in Charlottesville that we'll be dropping our, our younger kids off with. Only my wife and I can go to the, the big uh, celebration. But, uh, but yeah, we'll get pictures and, and uh, get them to you. But it'll, it should be pretty neat. Yeah, that's, that's I have to, have to rent a tux for this thing. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> Well, it's, that's incredible. I mean, congratulations. That's kind of That's neat. huge. Yeah. So you've been here almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. 2018 will be 20 years. Right. And uh, it, it sounds like you've enjoyed what you've done. You've been impressed by the students. You're, you're getting this award, which is, I'm, I'm assuming, once-in-a-lifetime type of deal. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> what's, um, what's on tap for the next 20 years? Well, uh, that's a great question. Hopefully I can still do the things that I enjoy doing. I, I, um, I do enjoy teaching. I do enjoy the students. And, uh, and the students, the quality of the students has always been great. 
Uh, I teach primarily 4,000 level uh, classes, so uh, by that time they figured out, you know, that they need to work, they need to work hard, they need to do well as they're going into grad school and that, so they typically do very, very well in my classes for the most part. Uh, so as long as that holds true, I think I'll still enjoy teaching as long as I get these great students that are involved and, you know, with moot court and even after moot court, court's over, uh, they still, you know, do the things I need to do in the classroom. Research-wise, again, I have other things uh, that I'm doing relative to legal history, uh, some things dealing with some Alabama, uh, some other Alabama uh, cases, some things dealing with the, um, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville and, and some of his comments as a French visitor to the United States in the 1830s about America and American institutions and how those need to be preserved and protected to uh, secure democracy. And so I've got several other projects down the road that I, that I hope to develop. And, uh, and again, as long as the students are solid and I'm enjoying what I'm doing, I'm ho I hope it will uh, be you know, uh, another couple of decades here because it's just been, it's been a great experience all the way around. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. And um, I appreciate your time coming in. Yeah, thank you very much. Regarding Research is produced by the College of Liberal Arts Office of External Affairs. To learn more, please visit us at cla.auburn.edu. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at AU Liberal Arts. I'm Austin Lacey, and thanks for listening.